0: Today's reading is a work of fiction and in no way attempts to depict events in real life. All characters are either completely fictitious or used in a satiric and fictitious manner. Hello. Let's go for a ride. Here we are. Ninth Story. So today we're gonna do something a little bit special. I have in the Ninth Story Studios, my good friend, Chuck. Chuck and I are in a writing group together. We get together every other Wednesday and read a little bit of each other's writing to each other. Chuck's actually working on a novel, a time travel story and i think chuck's getting close to the point of being done with his first draft i wish how close do you think you are at least halfway sometimes it takes a while for that story to come together but i had to learn how to write first that always helps that does help a b c d all that good stuff right and then words and dick and jane and and then eventually a novel so one of the things that we did is a little exercise was this about a year ago
1: at least yeah at least a year ago
0: each of us started a short story and then we passed it off to the next person and then they added their portion to the story and then it moved on to the next person and after it made it through the entire group the story ends up back with its original writer and the original writer basically takes it and pieces it together and and does the final draft so we did five stories the the idea of the exercise obviously was to try to get everybody to write in a different voice than what they were normally used to writing. So by writing so many different types of stories written by five different people, when you would pick that story up, you had to try to mimic the other person's voice and continue along the same lines. What we wanted to do as uh, Christmas gift to our group is do a reading of Chuck's story called The Screenplay. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to turn the microphone over to Chuck and hopefully you guys will enjoy it.
1: Screenplay. I quit smoking 20 years ago, and I live alone. It's no wonder the strong odor of cigarettes nudged me out of a shallow sleep. I dozed off in front of the TV watching a Twilight Zone marathon on cable. The last thing I remember was veteran actress Agnes Moorhead's character battling tiny space aliens in the attic of her lonely farmhouse in the 1961, Season 2, Episode 51, The Invaders. That was one of my favorite stories. Hours later, As my brain stirred itself into something approaching consciousness, I heard Rod Serling's distinctive voice as clearly as if he was in the next room. Since Serling only appeared at the beginning and the end of each show, I couldn't tell if the episode was starting or winding up. My eyes were still closed, but being more or less awake, I waited for the music soundtrack to cue me in. Oddly enough, it never came. Mr. Serling kept talking. I'd seen every episode many times and knew the dialogue by heart. I should have been able to decipher which story it was on, but I couldn't. And then he coughed. What the hell was that, I thought. Rod Serling never coughed on his show. He coughed again, laughed, and said, these things are going to kill me. An unfamiliar male voice with a New England accent said, I thought they already did. Stephen, you were the master of the obvious, a third male chimed in. The cultured baritone voice was unmistakable. Holy crap, I thought, that sounds like Orson Welles. Then all three voices laughed. My eyes snapped open. I said, bolt upright and stared at the TV set, but the screen was dark. I cursed the cable company for managing to lose the image portion of what had to be the previously unknown and never broadcast gem of an episode. Shit, why am I my pancreas such crappy cable service? I reached for the remote control, hoping against hope that I might be able to coax the picture back on. But the remote was missing. Ah, he's finally awake, I heard Orson Welles say. That's when I realized the voices were coming from behind me, in the dining room, and that the ceiling light was on in there. An icy chill tiptoed on my spine and every hair in my body stood on end. I slowly turned around and gasped at the sight that greeted my eyes. There, at my dining room table sat Rod Serling, Orson Welles, and Stephen King, all wreathed in a haze of cigarette smoke. <laughs> I got to my feet and stood there, moth agape, eyes stinging from the smoke, wondering if I'd lost my mind. Mr. Serling took one last drag from a short cigarette and stubbed it out in one of my great-grandmother's ceramic candy dishes. I hope you don't mind, but I couldn't find any ashtrays, he said with a sheepish grin. The candy dish was piled high with crushed cigarette butts. Next to the dish in a soft pack of unfiltered camels was my remote control. He noticed me glance at it. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Sterling said, as he retrieved a fresh camel from a half-empty pack. The programs were distracting us, so I borrowed the remote and turned off the TV. He winked and tossed the digital control to me. Despite being in a state of shock, I managed to catch the rope without even realizing it. Sure, I, uh, uh, no, no problem, I stammered while staring at each of my uninvited guests. Mr. Serling appeared exactly as he did when The Twilight Zone first aired. He leaned back in his chair, struck a match, lit his Camel, and inhaled deeply. After blowing a perfectly circular smoke ring, he smiled contentedly as the nicotine halo hovered over Orson Welles' head. Mr. Welles, sporting a grey beard, looked reasonably fit, but decidedly older and heavier than he did in his War of the Worlds and Citizen Kane prime. I watched as he poured himself a hefty shot of sherry from my previously unopened bottle of Harvey's. "'Hey, I was saving that for a special occasion,' I said, sounding a bit testier than I intended. Not that I expected to be celebrating anything in the near future, but it was my bottle. I would have appreciated being asked.' Mr. Wells apparently noted my foul mood. He raised his glass to make a mock toast. "'I believe our presence here should count as a special occasion. Wouldn't you agree, Stephen?' he said, turning toward King. Mr. King, unfortunately, was a sorry sight, battered, bruised, and bandaged from head to toe. His eyes were bloodshot with dark circles under them that matched the black and blue patches of skin visible on the unbandaged portions of his face. King winced as he shook his head at Wells. The world doesn't revolve around you, fat boy. You should have asked first, like I told you to when we first got here. Now that you mentioned it, I said, folding my arms over my chest, why are the three of you in my house anyway? And how did you get in? I mean, this is private property, and besides, you're all dead And My voice trailed off as I realized what I've just said. God, I'm actually talking to three dead men. King flapped his good arm in disgust. Now, just a minute, Mr. Dunn. He glanced at a notepad on a table. Dunnmire! I'm not, repeat, not. N-O-T. Dead yet. Tell him, Rod. Serling leaned forward, flicked the ash off his camel. That's true, he said, pointing the cigarette at King. Stephen is still among the living. He's under heavy sedation in a main hospital bed at the moment, recovering from yet another hit-and-run accident. Stunned, I muttered. But CNN said the Chevy Volt driver was the only... They jumped the gun and got it wrong, as usual, Well said. But as a result, Stephen Race is an honorary dead man this evening, and that's why he's here with us. And that gets us back to my original question. Why are you all here, I demanded. Serling crossed his legs and flicked more ash at the candy dish. It's a bit complicated, but, well, let's just say we're here to do the, for want of a better term, the screenplay for your life. What? I said, shocked, honored, and humbled that three such famous and talented individuals would consider my life worth writing about. You mean you're actually gonna do the story of my life as a screenplay for, for a movie or, or a television show? Is that it? No, 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 Well said. You don't understand. It wouldn't be the story of your life. He made air quotes with his fingers. The screenplay, as it were, will be the story for your life. You're right, I don't understand. Serling blew another smoke ring. Perhaps I can help. You see, when you die, you get to work doing what you did best in life. In our case, writers and directors get assigned to map out the plan or bare-bones outline for people's lives. They still have free will in all of that, but the plans we produce act like movie directors' shooting guides or storyboard. For simplicity's sake, I like to refer to it as a screenplay. Each individual is really their own producer, director, and leading man or woman in playing out the story of their life. They have ultimate say in how things turn out. Our screenplay simply gives them a nudge in the right direction. I hate the term screenplay, King interrupted. That's only because so few of your stories translated suitably to the silver screen, Wells said with a devilish glint in his eye. And that is the reason you're here as a mere understudy to learn how to write properly and to... You boring bloated blimp, King shot back. At least I'm not a Johnny Wondo It was all Don after Citizen Kane, wasn't it, Mr. Wonderkid? Mr. Greatest Movie Ever Made? Mr. Enough! Sterling shouted. He looked at me and grabbed his forehead with both hands. Damn it, they're going to drive me nuts. It was easier working with Shakespeare and Milton with these two. He sighed, took a deep breath, and tapped a finger on a pile of blank writing paper. Okay, guys, I forgot to get going on this. Mr. Dunmire needs us to do a bang-up job in his life. King looked at the stack of paper in front. Why well, can't we use computers or typewriters at least? Serling blew triple smoke rings. Stephen, I told you we are going to go strictly old school tonight. All right, gentlemen, let's begin. I stood there dumbfounded watching each of them write my full name, Daniel Edward Dunmeyer III, across the top of their individual pages. Serling printed in deep black letters with a disposable ballpoint. Wells produced an expensive looking fond pen and gave his cursive script a bold John Hancock flourish that threatened to run off the paper. King bitched up a storm trying to write with a sharp pencil in his non-dominant hand. His other bound in a plaster cast, two fingers straight out with embedded metal pins. King's scribbling was so pitiful, I didn't even think he could read it. They bickered back and forth as they wrote, seldom looking up from their efforts, each certain they had the better plot going. By the time they reached the middle of the third page, I cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Excuse me uh, for erupting, but... Serling tilted his head in my direction and raised an eyebrow. I felt intimidated, but pressed on. Gentlemen, you're going to consult me, aren't you? I mean, after all, why else bother to come here? We're dealing with my life, you know. I had their annoyed but undivided attention. Serling simply blew another smoke ring and grinned without saying a single word. I suppose we couldn't let you have some input into these proceedings, Wells said, his fountain pen leaking ink on a suddenly blank page. What would you like to propose? Sweat ran down the back of my neck. My mouth was as dry as the dusty gift bottle of vermouth I never opened. I'd like to have some say in how the rest of my life goes. That's only fair, isn't it? That would present you with a very rare opportunity, Wells said, drumming his chubby fingers on the table. Please realize that very few individuals ever get to have any say so in these matters. Be that as it may, it would behoove you to speak your piece quickly since we are unable to hold back time forever. What? I stammered. King groaned, his glass slid to the end of his nose. Why not take a look outside? After all, it's not like we have anything better to do than wait around for you. I walked to the front window, pulled back the curtain and lit out an audible gasp. Across the street, the Olsen boy was frozen on his blue BMX bicycle. Moth open and one arm outstretched, his other on the handlebars, both feet on the pedals. His red-iron setter caught mid-stride. All four paws off the ground at the bike's rear wheel. Mrs. Olson stood on her front porch with the wooden spoon raised under her left hand. Oh shit, I mumbled as I opened the living room door and stepped out onto my small porch. There was no breeze. The sun was low in the sky and the street lamps were just coming on. It was eerily quiet. No sound came from my next-door neighbor Harry's lawnmower engine. He was stopped in mid-push, his pudgy arms stretched out with a mower hanging over the incline of his yard. There was no rushing sound from the interstate highway a couple blocks away. Overhead a Boeing 757 jetliner on final approach cast its long stationary shadow on the street. This is insane, I muttered, shaking my head in disbelief. Even my nose detected the strangest of the moment. There was no pine scent from my recently trimmed evergreen shrubs, no smell of cut grass mingled with lawnmower exhaust. No sweet fragrance from Mrs. Amberson's prized lilac bushes. Instead, the atmosphere was heavy, charged with static bristling with the acrid taint of ozone. Unfortunately, I could still detect the overpowered stench of Sterling's cigarette smoke wafting out the open door behind me. I even caught a hint of alcohol swirling in the ice in Wells' of glass. Serling's clipped laugh underved me as he tapped me on the shoulder. Come on back in, Mr. Dunmire, and have a seat. I left the door open and followed Sterling to the dining room. He turned toward me and grinned. I suppose this seems like you're starring in your own personal Twilight Zone episode today. I nodded in stunned silence, finally aware of how short Sterling was compared to my six foot two inch height. This trim, wiry ex paratrooper couldn't have been much over five feet four inches tall, if that. He graciously pulled out the last chair for me. A half glass of Harvey's on the rocks sat on the table before me. I hadn't heard the tinkling of ice dropping in the tumbler. I took a long drink and asked myself. What the hell was going on, sitting here with three dead men? Well, two dead and one on the way. King scowled, I am not dead yet, and no, it's not a matter of any time soon. I felt my face go pale as I realized they could all read my mind. I knocked back a quick slug of Harvey's, nearly choking on a piece of ice. I sputtered I'm sorry, Mr. King, really, I, I am. King drubbed his pencil eraser on the table and shot an annoyed glance in Wells' direction. The clock is ticking on these proceedings. His statement was metaphorical, of course, since all the clocks were stopped. I sat in my high backed chair feeling like an errant schoolboy, glass in hand and my elbow on the table. I couldn't think for a moment. If you guys could read my mind, why did he mean to tell you anything? I finally said, hoping to buy more time. Sterling tapped another camel out of his pack and lit up. It would seem, Mr. Dunmire, that you are one of those rare individuals who cannot be read. In such cases, we often call Central and have them send on someone to help us out. But, I said, trailing off as he raised a hand for silence, Yes, Mr. Dunmar, we can read some of your thoughts, but only those pertaining directly to us. Swirling a little misshapen smoke ring and frowned, regrettably, we are unable to plumb the immeasurable depths of your being. We find ourselves thwarted at every turn in attempting to uncover your inmost desires. Our efforts to understand what lies at the very center of your soul, the nub of your nature, are stymied in a desperate and ultimately futile search to discover what you want or hope to get out of life. He pointed his cigarette at me. In that regard, Mr. Dunmire, you are a cipher. A veritable blank slate to us. Bravo, Wells said, clapping his hands. I couldn't have stated the situation better myself. King merely grumbled. "That sounds like the entrance of one of your damn TV shows. And besides, Wells continued, if we could adequately read your mind, we would not need to be here now, thus precluding the opportunity to share this fine bottle of spirits with you. He drained his glass and clumsily slammed it down on the table, barely missing the candy dish full of sterling cigarette butts. So please, Mr. Dunmire, enlighten us. I shifted nervously in my seat. It feels kind of, well, really weird discussing that sort of thing. Wells poured himself more harveys. How so, Mr. Dunmire? Oh, you know, laying out all my thoughts and feelings in front of a rule of guys. An image of the three of them dressed as the ugliest woman I'd ever seen popped into my head. Please don't ever do that again, I yelled. They all laughed while I tried to delete the dreadful image from my mind. Look, what I really want is a family, a few kids, a pretty woman for a wife. Hopefully not one looks like any of you, by the way. Is that too much to ask? You mean you don't want to do anything really grand or exciting? Just have a family? King said, sneering. What about climbing the pyramids of Egypt, trekking the frozen expanse of the Antarctic, witnessing the snake charmers of New Delhi, or traveling the globe searching for treasure artifacts? I shook my head no. King snapped his pencil in two. Rod, I thought you said this one would be interesting. He's boring, B-O-R-I-N-G, boring, and a waste of my skills. I could be at home recuperating, dreaming out my next bestseller. Disgusted, he threw the pencil pieces on the floor. Dunmire, you could save us all a lot of time and trouble if you just married that, that Widow Kujanowitz down the street. She's still kind of pretty, plus she has five kids and a German Shepherd. My voice rose like a girl. What, no, no, not the Widow. She hates men and her kids are rotten little brass and her dog is a vicious flea-ridden canine psychopath. I took a deep breath. Look, I was thinking more along the lines of a pleasant younger woman, single, intelligent, attractive, maybe with a name like Rachel, someone I could meet and fall in love with. You know, more like your typical romance situation. Sort of like like a, like some damn Harlequin potboiler, King said. You know, this is enough to make me start drinking again. Wells looked him over and grinned. Excellent idea, Stephen. Your writing was much better when you were in the bottle. King muttered something under his breath, grabbed a fresh pencil, and began scratching furiously on his path. My living room walls swirled and I found myself alone in total darkness. There was a creak and the groan of wood settling as the darkness faded. A fire crackled and brightened the cozy living room. I was seated at a large oak desk with a steaming mug of black coffee to the left of my typewriter and a cigarette burning slowly in the ashtray in front of me. I picked up the coffee nail and took a drag and set it back down. I grabbed the mug and found the coffee warm and good, just a hair below too hot to drink, just the way I liked it. I swallowed feeling the heat traveled down, warming me. I set the mug on my desk, opened the top right drawer and pulled out a half empty bottle of I tipped a little into the cup, bringing the level of the liquid back to full. I stirred the whiskey into the coffee with my trusty red pen, tapped the pen on the mug's rim, and brought the poor man's Irish coffee to my lips for a long swallow. Ah, now that's a good cup of joe, I nodded to the room. Oddly enough, I wasn't sure I believed what I just said. Part of me seemed to be howling in silent protest that I found black coffee, especially with a combination of cigarettes and whiskey, quite foul. But there I was, smoking and sipping away and smacking my lips. I guess I liked it after all. I paused to look out the window and watch the snow fall. Winter in Maine, I said dryly to myself, one of these days I'm gonna get a nice place in Florida and be done with the bitter cold and scraping ice off the car. The lot was a nice time but living there was getting old. As I watched the snowflakes drifting down, a pair of headlights appeared on the top of the hill. I wondered who could be coming down here at this time of night. My cabin sat at the end of a long and narrow road. This time of the year, the only vehicle I regularly saw was the mailman's old Ford Explorer but it was too late for Hank to be making a mail run, not to mention it was Sunday. The oncoming lights brightened, quickly, too quickly. Whoever was behind the wheel was traveling far too fast the road conditions. I watched, mesmerized as the driver tried to turn and follow the last curve, but lost control. The car skidded, spun, and tumbled over sideways a few times before coming to rest in the middle of my lawn. I ran to my front door grabbed my coat and hauled ass out to the wreck. The snow was cold as it forced its way up my pant leg, but I kept running. I reached the overturned vehicle, dropped on my knees, sliding the last couple of feet and peering inside. The glass was shattered into a gummy web and started peeling away. A mass of blonde curls hung from the woman's head and she turned to face me. Are you okay, I asked her. Her face was a mask of fright. She looked at me, her eyes darting over my face as if searching for something. You have to get me out of here. We need to get to a church or something, she said her words rambling and tumbling over each other as she spoke. I find it odd that she said, a church. But I reasoned she was just shaken up. She must have meant a hospital. Sure, just relax, I'll get you out. She tried to nod but found doing it upside down to be difficult. Just hurry, she said. They know I saw them. They'll be after me. Who will be after you? I reached through the ruined window and felt for the seatbelt buckle. The vampires. Sales lot is full of damn blood-sucking vampires.' I was holding her just about ready to press the button when there was a deep laugh from behind me. "'That's bullshit,' it said. "'You can't just write the poor bastard into one of your stories.' I found myself back in my dining room, seated at the table. It was Wells speaking, and his face was pink with amusement and perhaps a little of the drink. "'No one said that was a rule.' King tossed his pencil on the notepad in front of him. He crossed his arms over his chest as best he could and glared at the bearded older man. "'Come on,' Wells said." You have to know that's cheating. Besides, what's romantic about being in a town full of vampires? He has to meet a nice woman and settle You threw him in a horror novel. Yeah, but I was going somewhere. Fighting through intense situations together can bring people closer together. She was going to be his love interest. I agree with Mr. Wells, I said. I'd really rather not have to fight off vampires. Whatever, King said and stood up. He walked over to the fridge, opened it and started rummaging around inside. Wells fiddled with his fountain pen for a minute. I think Mr. Dunmire was looking for something a little more down to earth. What a dog, maybe. King's voice came from inside the refrigerator. Sure, go for boring. He wants the dog. Why not get hold of Koontz? If there's anything you can count on from him, it's some magically brilliant canine showing up. Crap, don't you have anything other than salami in here? I like salami, I said defensively. Besides, I wasn't expecting guests tonight. King sighed and pulled out the salami and mustard and made his way to the counter. I was hoping for a nice bologna and cheese. But you're single, so I'm sure every sandwich you make is your favorite, and to hell with what your guests might like. Where's your bread? I don't suppose you have any rye, do you? You are not my guest, and I never invited you here. You and your, your vampire crap. Forget the freaking bread and references to Salem's Lot, Serling shouted. We're going nowhere, and we don't have much time left. King didn't respond. He just opened the refrigerator doors until he found the bread and began making his sandwich. Amateur hey, are Serling muttered, shaking his head. Okay, Mr. Dunmar, we'll give this a second shot. Serling dug out another cigarette out of his pack and lit it. He grabbed his ballpoint pen and started writing. For it seemed like hours, Serling scribbled away while Wells gleefully tossed grandiose suggestions and King scowled. As they read portions a lot, I would give my feedback and try to guide them into writing me into a happy, yet feasible ending, much to King's dismay. Then Serling stopped, double-checked his work, passed it to Wells and lit up another camel. Wells murmured to himself as he scanned the pages and gave them King. Their faces were like granite. I couldn't get a read on them. For the last 20 pages, good or bad? King finally finished. He tossed it back to Wells saying, Really? Wells sighed and nodded to Sterling. I'm afraid this time I must agree with the lad. He passed the screenplay back to Sterling who puffed thoughtfully on his camel before speaking. Yes, it seems we've come to a critical juncture. Mr. Sterling took the last 20 pages, ripped them in half and tossed them into the air. The pieces immediately disappeared in a flash of light before they could float to the floor. So now what I asked, suddenly frightened by the lack of a final act, King and Wells both leaned forward and stared at Serling. Serling lowered his head in resignation and relaxed his shoulders. Funny, I hadn't realized how stiff his posture was until he allowed himself to slouch a bit. Now we call in, Serling paused in his characteristic way, the Ghost Rider. Taken aback, I was confused for maybe the hundredth time since waking to the pungent fumes of burning tobacco. Another ghost, I said. King piped up, I am not a! turning, commented with a raised hand. This is THE ghost writer, sent to doctor whatever screenplays we struggle with. He's only been with us for a short while and sometimes his rewrites are golden and sometimes... Well, we'll see. From upstairs I heard the toilet flush. I jumped and pointed. What the hell? King leaned toward me with his stubby fingers straining against the middle rods. He says he does some of his best brainstorming up there. He sits in the bathroom of people he's going to write for? I asked. King sneered slightly. No, not their bathrooms. Just yours. It's his favorite spot. I shook my head like an etch-a-sketch, trying to erase the image when I realized whoever was squatting in my upstairs water closet was about to come down. I heard some whistling of footsteps descending the stairs. Transfixed, I wasn't sure who I'd see coming around the corner at the far end of the living room. Poe? Fleming? Miller? Hitchcock? Roddenberry? An unassuming pale man with red hair above a receding hairline, dressed in a Hawaiian shirt and cargo shorts, came over and smiled. He looked like Conan O'Brien with Ron Howard's follicle challenge scalp. Nodding to the three writers on my table, he said, Ni hao. Wells chimed in, undoubtedly cued by the blank look on my face. That's Chinese for hello, Mr. Dunmire. I turned back. Conan O'Brien speaks Chinese? The man lit out a hearty laugh. I'm not Conan O'Brien, but thank you for expecting me to have more hair. He shook my hand. You can call me Joss. I was at a loss. I didn't know any classic screenwriters, authors, or poets whose first names were Joss. He cocked an eyebrow. Obviously he could read my immediate thoughts as well. No, sir, not a classic, at least not yet. Serling spoke up. Mr. Whedon here is the showrunner responsible for some recent television series successes. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, Dollhouse. Wells added, and let's not forget his forays onto the silver screen with such fair as Toy Story, Cabin in the Woods, and Avengers comic book adaptation, as well as the Bard's very own Much Ado About Nothing. King added proudly, and he's read everything I've ever written. And it dawned on me, but Joss isn't dead or near death. He gave a look like a schoolboy condolite. Well... Serling filled in the blanks. In a way, he did die. You see, he had pinned all his hopes and dreams on a certain motion picture idea in 1992. He was so hopeful he made a certain deal. It would be the greatest epic success even if it cost him his very life. So what happened? I asked. King spit out the next words like they were bow. It tanked. Wells provided a more diplomatic translation. It failed to become the grand cinematic masterpiece it was meant to be. The studio got a hold of it and twisted into something different. Whedon began to speak, now in a more somber tone. I created my first Buffy the Vampire Slayer script, hoping it would become a film icon. One of those stories that made people want to live in it, not the movie it became. Serling continued, for all intents and purposes, Mr. Whedon's dream was ended. Until he entered the Twilight Zone, I offered excitedly. Serling paused briefly and did an eye roll. A coffee shop in Burbank. He slipped on some spilled creamer and fell and hit his head. King picked up the narration. That's when he came face to face with the dealmaker. Who's the dealmaker, I asked. King smacked his forehead with his good hand. Monty Hall, who else? Remember, we told you that in death, you continued the careers you had in life. Are you sure your name is Dunmeyer, not dumbass? My brow furrowed. Isn't Monty Hall still alive too? King just pointed at himself and Whedon like a constipated mime, a blood vessel on his forehead throbbing. Whedon reacted with a careful, oh. K. Anyway, I was given the choice of accepting my death and the end of my Buffy dream, or agreeing to rework it as a TV series and be on call as a script doctor for this particular writer's pool. I chose door number one and didn't pay any attention to the goat next to the hay. Basically, the trade-off was every television show I created would get cancelled before its time. No matter how hard I'd try, I'd end up back at Fox. Strangley added, the price of making a deal in, he waited for the tension to build Hollywood. I just stood there, moth agape for a while, as my uninvited guests all looked at me. Orson Wells broke the silence by saying, How about we get back on track? The next several hours were spent with Whedon furiously typing away in a laptop that materialized in front of him. Apparently, he wasn't beholden to the old school stipulation. Sterling Wells occasionally peered over his shoulder, and even King nodded in approval from time to time. Of course, I thought, there must be vampires or something in there. Joss looked up and answered by silent aside. Close. Finally, a stack of papers printed out of thin air, and there were 80 more pages to the screenplay for my life. Joss handed out copies for all of us to do a reading around the table, each of us with our own parts to read. As before, I was overwhelmed by a swirl of black and found myself sitting in a modest, yet stylish, California condo with a sort of hipster decor. The front door swung open, and in she strode, this luscious young female in a tight skirt who was equally part beautiful, witty, capable, and indispensable. She was a very epitome of the liberated, yet approachable woman. She smiled a warm smile at me and said, if you ask me, the saving the world stuff is murder of my Giuseppe Zanotti's. She indicated the sky-high patent leather platform pumps on her feet. I turtled and answered, that's okay, sweetheart. You're simply good at what you do and it's not like the Zanotti's are irreplaceable. She snuggled up next to me real quick and examined the glittering ring on her finger. It's hard to believe I'm actually going to be a Mrs. I'm still trying to figure out how you were able to force such a massive rock. I shook my head. No, a real mystery is how I was able to get one on your finger. Suddenly, there was a sound of screeching tires outside. We jumped to the picture window over our Charles Eames designer couch and watched as headlights became brighter, much too rapidly, and a car swerved at the turn in the road. The driver lost control and the car flipped over. My lady turned toward me and shrugged. Never a dull moment. She tore out through the door, headed to the accident site, the resolute look of an experienced first responder on her gorgeous face. That's what I love most about her. Well, that and her tight skirts. As I turned to grab the first aid kit we kept by the door, I could hear her say, Are you? But the sound of a blood-curdling howl drowned out her voice, and I realized we'd need silver daggers too. Just as I grabbed them, I heard an explosion. The room lit up and flames blasted through the window. Glass shattered and sprayed in. I coughed and realized the black smoke smelled ugly like that of cigarettes. I clawed my way to the open cavity that was no longer covered with expensive UV reflective thoroughpanes. There, lying next to the smoldering car was the woman I loved and pursued. I finally won her heart and proposed and she said yes, making me the happiest man in the world. Now she lied dead, is the unmistakable sign of werewolves grew closer. I couldn't believe how unfair it was. What kind of cruel world was I living in? There was a harsh, racking cough and I heard Rod Serling say, I admire the twist, but aren't we supposed to be shaping a happy life here? In a flash, I was sitting at my dining room table again, looking at Serling, Wells, King, and Whedon, all clutching pages from my screenplay. I was back. Whedon looked at Serling, grinned widely, and said, ain't I a sticker? I tossed the papers over my shoulder. No, 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 this is not what I agreed to. Whedon folded his arms in front of him, almost contritely began. You see, tension, conflict, and pain makes the characters grow and develop. You should give the audience what they need, not what they want. I sighed and pointed to the door. Please leave. Whedon didn't seem particularly vexed. He simply stood, shook his head. As you wish, he muttered, crossed my living room and made his way back up the stairs. I was about to protest when I realized he was returning to his favorite room. I turned and gave icy stares to the trio of miscreant writers still seated at my table. King spoke up first. Hey, be thankful we didn't bring in Lucas. He would have rewritten your childhood to completely contradict your adult life, explained your faith as a byproduct of microbiology, and provided you with an anthropomorphic duck as a sidekick. Totally exasperated, I gritted my teeth, mentally counted to ten and repeated my earlier question. So now what? You are a conundrum, Mr. Dunmire, Sterling said. He tried making a smoke ring, but only succeeded in blowing out a long stream of smoke. Frustrated, he flicked ash from his camel, missing the candy dish by several inches. I wondered how many packs of camels had gone through this evening since the dish was piled high to with crushed cigarette butts. He's no conundrum, he's just being difficult. You need to give us more to work with. Living happily ever after with a girl of your dreams isn't enough by any measure. Wells chimed in. I'm afraid Stephen has a point. What exactly are your desires? Your motivation? He looked around the house. Surely you aspire to more than this, he said, gesturing with an open palm. This? My voice came out as a harsh bark. What's wrong with this? I waved my own hand around. I was perfectly happy with this until all you showed up. Perfectly happy as more than salami in the refrigerators, King muttered. I like, L-I-K-E, salami, S-A-L-A-M-I, dammit. Maybe it was the smoke irritating my eyes and sending me into nicotine cravings. Or maybe it was the nauseating feeling of pulling an all-nighter, even though the time had gone to a halt. It was the disappointment of seeing these icons I always admired now failing me. Whatever it was, I no longer cared how my life was written, as long as I wouldn't have to deal with these three jokers anymore. I trudged over to my couch, picked up the TV remote, and flopped back down in the same position I'd been in when all of this began. My guests were talking in hushed tones in the dining room. I didn't care what they thought or said Now, I turned the television on to drown out their conversation before realizing it would probably be paused in time like everything else. Just as I went to hit the remote off button, the screen came to life with the crisp black and white images of another Twilight Zone unreeling as they should. It was the haunting 1960, Season 1, Episode 30, A Stop at Willoughby. The coincidence of seeing a story in which a man under great stress dreams of escape to a life in idyllic time made me smile bitterly. I couldn't help wondering if I was fated to unintentionally step off a speeding train and die like he did. As I punched up the volume, the revolting yet alluring smell of tobacco smoke wafted over me like a noxious cloud, blank white paper obstructed my view. I rolled toward the arm holding the paper to find an apologetic-looking surling standing over me, a cigarette burning uncomfortably close to his lips. Why don't you try, he asked with condescension. It wasn't enough to defuse my anger. I snatched the paper from his hand, crumbled it in my fist, and got to my feet. My life is not a horror novel or a pop culture venue, and I sure as hell hope I don't die alone pining for some damn sled named Rosebud. I yelled, glaring at the appropriate man in turn. With clenched fist, I stared down at Serling, and I don't recall ever wanting to be in a Twilight Zone episode. Okay, that last part wasn't entirely true, but after this evening's experience, I changed my mind on the subject. The three men stared blankly at me. Serling's lips pulled back into a knowing grin as he removed the cigarette stub. He broke the standoff by walking over to the candy dish and snuffed out the smoke, which was suddenly of great interest to everyone at the table after the discomfort of my outburst. I took the opportunity to storm out the front door. At first, I had no purpose or destination in mind and angrily forged ahead, determined to put as much distance as possible between myself and the three uninvited co-pilots of my life. The street was in better shape than the sidewalk, so I figured, what the hell, and charged right down the middle of it. It felt liberating, but more than a little weird to weave around stationary vehicles and walk past neighbors and pets paused in the midst of everyday actions. There was even a pickpocket frozen in the act of relieving old Mr. Jenkins of the wallet in his back pocket. I stopped for a moment, lifted the wallet from the thief's skilled fingers, put it in Mr. Jenkins' vest pocket, and replaced it with the thief's own wallet. Satisfied with my good deed, I continued on my way. The angry thoughts fueled my indignation, goading me to walk even faster. That's when I realized I still had the crumpled sheet of paper in my left hand. I shoved it into my back pocket and kept walking. I may have been mad, okay, damn mad, but I was no litterbug. Thinking about Orson Wells draining my bottle of Harvey's, I decided it was time to do some serious drinking myself. I turned up Webster Street and headed for a place called The Corner Bar, located in the middle of the block. Yes, the joint was intentionally misnamed. It was a stale joke, almost as tacky as the establishment itself, but there at least I'd have a fine selection of spirits to choose from. Best of all, these were spirits that wouldn't talk back and write ridiculous drivel while trying to kill off the imaginary love of my life or feed me to fictional creatures. Thankfully the time stop happened before the bar closed. I walked through the front door, propped open to let in light and provide circulation to compensate for a broken air conditioner in a notoriously smoky environment even before learning of an anti-smoking ordinance loophole. The bar's owner refused to ban smoking as an act of protest against big government's intrusion to the affairs of small business owners. However admirable his public defiance may have been, it earned him a multitude of fines and was also the reason I seldom frequented the establishment. But after the last few hours with Rod Serling, how long had it been anyway? I figured the smoke here couldn't be any worse, especially with things at a standstill. Being a weekday, there were few people inside and no one behind the bar. The bartender must have been back in the kitchen or downstairs when the time stop occurred. That made things easier for me. I went behind the bar and scanned the usual stock of liquors, searching for something different, until I spied a lovely bottle of Bushmills 12-year single malt peeking out my low dark shelf on the back wall. Better than Mr. Wells is having tonight, I said a lot as I plucked the bottle from its hiding place and found a thick, short glass. I was in mid when a woman's voice said, "'You got Wells, huh?' Startled, I spilled expensive whiskey all over the bar as I looked in the direction of the voice. A petite young woman laughed and came toward me. She had sandy blonde hair pulled back in a loose bun, a light sprinkling of freckles on her tiny nose and a pleasant, easy smile that perfectly matched her casual stride in the comfortable-looking white blouse, faded jeans, and ballet flats attire. She took the bottle of Bushmills from my hand, poured more in a glass, and recapped the bottle while I stood aghast. Using a fresh bar towel, she mopped up the spilt whiskey chuckled again and said, You better drink that. Looks like you really need it. I glanced from the glass to her and back to the glass again. I picked it up as requested, hesitating a little by swirling the amber contents around and finally took a sip, watching her over the rim. She stood there smiling at me, thumbs hooked into pockets of her snug jeans. Whether it was the surprise I had or the gaze of a beautiful woman, I barely tasted the whiskey. The gears in my head finally started turning and I had the awareness to ask, are you dead or almost dead? She laughed again, her eyes squinting into joyful half circles. No, I work here. This did nothing but confuse me, since the only other people not frozen in time were me, ghosts, or those who might or should be ghosts. Before I could formulate another question to straighten out this mess within a mess, she said, I'm sorry, it's just that her eyes looked up as she pondered the words. I've known this would happen, but I didn't know when. I'm Rachel. Rachel Coda, She held out her hand. Her name. Rachel hit me like a thunderbolt. I picked out that very name out of the blue in my conversation with King earlier. I stood there dumbfounded until she spoke again. And yours is? Uh, I, uh, I'm Dan, Daniel Dunmar. My friends just call me Danny. I said, finally taking her small hand in mine and shaking it carefully. Perhaps it was my imagination, but I swear I felt a tingling sensation at her touch. Wow, she said, even the name is right. Makes me wonder if you're real or if I made you up. I sure hope you're real. She picked up my glass of whiskey and took a sip. I watched her lips press against the glass and hoped she was real too. I made a show pinching my forearms in demonstration. As far as I know, I'm real, but I haven't been too sure about anything else for I looked around the bar until I saw an ancient Duquesne Brewing Prince of Pilsner's illuminated clock on the wall. For however long it's been, the clock had stopped at 422, but that didn't seem right. The happy giggle escaped her again. That clock hasn't worked for ages, she said. Then her voice took on a more serious tone. Do you know how long you have left? It seemed like a strange question to ask in this timeless setting, much less by a person who shouldn't understand any of it. I thought for a moment and gave what I hoped she would at least consider an amusing answer. I don't really know. Maybe until Wells empties my bottle of Harvey's or Serling runs out of cigarettes. Her eyebrows raised in surprise. You have Wells and Serling? Man, you're lucky. Not the way he smokes, I said. But how did you know my name? And uh, she tossed a vore towel under the counter and sat on the stool next to me. I had Jane Austen and Virginia Woolf, believe it or not. The situation got a little tense between them, and C.S. Lewis dropped in to act as a mediator. Austen's the one who kept pestering me to choose a male name she could use in her version of my future life. I always liked Danny, and that's the one I picked. She rotated the glass on the bar surface for a moment. They told me to expect a meeting like this to happen, but they never gave me a time frame. She drew serious again, reached out, put her hand on mine, and looked into my eyes as if she could see the workings of my mind. You really don't have any idea about your personal time limit, do you? I shrugged, no, not really. She poured more Bushmills, took a sip and handed me the glass. Okay, now think hard. Is there anything unusual going on with one of your guests? Some little thing out of the ordinary that keeps occurring over and over? Something that couldn't possibly happen? I assume you mean something other than time coming to a standstill and having three more or less dead guys arguing in my dining room. You had three of them show up too? Four actually. I donned a healthy slug of whiskey. They brought Stephen King along as an honorary dead man, mostly for remedial training, according to Wells. Rachel shook her head. And here I thought Wolf was Caddy. Who was the fourth? Joss Whedon. He got called in to take a shot as a ghostwriter when Sterling's storyline tanked, so to speak. But isn't Whedon still? Yeah, he's even more alive than King at the moment. But his situation is, well, kind of complicated. Trust me, it'd take too long to explain. So how did he do? I can sum it up in one word. Werewolves, you're kidding. Scott's honor," I said, and emptied my glass. I made him leave. Good for you. She poured more bushmills and sampled it again. All right, let's get back to any unusual habits one of your three little friends might have. Start with Stephen King. King hates my choice of lunch meat. He tried to write me a one-way ticket to Salem's Lot and kept complaining about well, just about everything. It's got to be his meds talking. Kind of a break. He's probably still in a lot of pain. She handed me the glass. What about Mr. Wells? He's been pontificating about everything under the sun while single-handedly draining my large bottle of Harvey's. Meanwhile, he hardly did a lick of writing. That sounds par for the course for the ex-Wonderkin. What about the bottle? You said it's yours? Damn right, and I was trying to save it for a special occasion, too. Say, do you have any peanuts around here? Shrimp behind the bar came back with two bags and handed me one, thanks. Was the bottle levels going down as he imbibed? Sure. And it didn't refill itself? What? No, of course not. How could it possibly re... And that's when I had a vision of my great-grandmother's candy dish. piled high with cigarette butts, Serling's lone soft pack of camels was sitting next to it. The unopened bag of peanuts slipped my fingers and fell to the floor. Danny, are you all right? You look pale as a ghost. Rachel covered her mouth with a hand. Oops, sorry about the poor choice of words. I just sat there, staring off into space and hardly breathing. After a moment, I turned toward her and muttered, Cigarettes. It's got to be Serling's damn cigarettes. What about his cigarettes? I felt a massive tension headache coming on and I rubbed my eyes trying to concentrate on the image rapidly fading from my mind. I have a large candy dish that Serling commandeered for an ashtray. It was overflowing with a huge mound of cigarette butts from the moment I woke until I stormed out of the house and came here. Rachel grabbed my arm. Now we're getting somewhere, she said, bouncing excitedly on the bar stool. And the whole time I was with my three malcontent buddies Sirling smoked like a blast furnace. He kept pulling cigarette after cigarette out of his one and only pack of camels. It was like an army of clowns spilling out of a miniature car at the circus. She pondered her hands on my forearm and yelled, yes, yes, that's got to be it. And the kicker is that the pile of butts in the candy dish never got any higher. Rachel got to her feet, flung her arms around my neck and hugged me, pulling me off of the barstool in the process. That wonderful smile of hers went ear to ear. You nailed it, Daddy. You found your time limit key. She handed me the glass of Bushmills. That deserves another drink. As I put the glass to my lips, I said, great but now that i know the key what do i do with it? rachel's hazel eyes grew larger i almost forgot that part you need to get back she snatched a glass from my hand and set it on the bar next to a bottle of bush that will be waiting for you here when you're done done doing what she took my hand with me around the bar and toward the door you've got to go and make them write exactly what you want your life to be like and it has to be done before Sterling runs out of cigarettes i hold it before we got sight. But that won't work. They've been arguing among themselves, writing unrealistic scenarios, wasting time drinking and eating and smoking and complaining. They hardly listened to anything I had to say. Then get back there write it yourself, she said, pulling on my arm. It doesn't have to be a masterpiece. Just what you want out of life. Her words reminded me of the crumpled sheet of paper I absent-mindedly stuffed into my back pocket as I was walking. I felt for it and noted it was still there. Come on, she said with a hearty tug. Get going. There's no telling how many camels Serling has left. She glanced across the room and screamed followed a gaze to the broken wall clock. His hands were spinning. Backwards. That can't be good, I murmured as I felt my blood turn to ice. Rachel looked at me with terror-stricken eyes. Danny, it's got to be a warning signal. Mr. Serling must be lighting up a last cigarette right now. To finish before you get back. I reached into my pocket, pulled out the wrinkled paper and showed it to her. Serling gave me this and suggested I give it a try. Her mouth formed a perfect circle as she gasped in surprise. Let me find a pen. Rachel dropped my hand and rushed back around behind the bar. I got it, she yelled, and returned seconds later, wide-eyed and nearly hyperventilating. She shoved the pen into my hand and pushed me over to an empty table. Quick, sit down and start writing. We both looked at the older couple sitting at the next table. The man's arms had shifted position slightly, and the woman's eyes had closed in mid-blink. I nearly dropped the pen. Oh shit, time is starting up again. The wall clock's hands were spinning backwards even faster now. Come on, come on, write, 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 she demanded. I can't think with you, yelling at me. The clock's hands were a blur. Danny, I'm sorry, but you've got to do it now. She kept tapping a finger on the wrinkled sheet of paper like it was a telegraph key. Write something, anything, just as long as it's what you want out of your life from here on out. But there's not enough. It doesn't have to be long. A paragraph, a sentence is all it'll take. Hell, even three words will do. That's all I needed. Just three words? I said, glancing, hopefully at her. Yes, as long as those three words say exactly what you want right now more than ever. Something that will allow you to make a clean start. Rachel's last two words reminded me of a statement Serling had made earlier. I put pen to paper, scribbled a three-word sentence, and showed it to her as I stood up. Perfect! She kissed me on the lips and pushed me toward the door. Now go! I ran out to the street, noting that everything had changed positions. All of the people and animals on the sidewalk and the cars and trucks in the street were moving in ultra-slow motion now. Everything was creeping along at a barely perceptible pace. My ears picked up a continuous groaning sound. It was coming from all around me, the slow, gracial rumble of a frozen world returning to life. Darting past barely moving vehicles, I made my way back home. As I neared my street, I smiled at the sight of old Mr. Jenkins in the slow motion act of hitting the surprise pickpocket over the head with his walking cane. At last, my house came into view. The front door was still open. I ran through the doorway, jumped over the living room couch, and skidded to a stop at the entrance to my dining room. Mr. Serling was seated there alone. The table was bare except for my great-grandmother's ceramic candy dish, which was empty and wiped spotlessly clean. The only cigarette evidence was the stub in Sterling's right hand. Despite that, there wasn't the slightest odor of cigarettes in the air. Shocked and speechless, I pointed to the two previously occupied chairs. Serling laughed. Orson and Steven decided to go out for a drink together since their work here is finished. Believe it or not, they're actually getting along quite famously now. Their work finished? I muttered in despair. I'm I, I, too late, right? He leaned back in his chair, took one last puff on his camel and blew a beautiful geometrically perfect smoke ring. With a contented sigh, he flicked the cigarette through the smoke ring's center and both vanished without a trace. No, Mr. Dunmire, not at all. You managed to heed Rachel's sage advice just in time. You know about her? He raised one of his bushy eyebrows. After today's events, you really don't need me to answer that question now. Do you, Mr. Admire? No, I guess not. He pointed at the crumbled sheet of paper still clutched in my hand. Let's see what you wrote. I handed it to him. He looked it over, gave it back, and said, Excellent. By the way, there's a fresh bottle of Harvey's in the kitchen and a nice selection of imported salamis in your refrigerator. I glanced toward the kitchen and saw a large, unopened bottle of Harvey's on the counter. Just like he said. I turned back to thank him but he was gone to suddenly his last smoke ring. From outside, I could hear Mrs. Olson calling her son Jimmy in for supper over the racket of Harry's lawnmower engine. Things were back to normal. In a daze, I stuffed the paper into my pocket and wandered into the living room, trying to make sense of everything that had happened. The TV was still on, and another Twilight Zone was just starting, season one, episode 32, a passage for trumpet. That's the one where Jack Klugman's Don on his luck trumpet player gets a second chance at life. I wasn't particularly unlucky, and I surely wasn't a musician of any sort, but my own life had been rather lonely up until this point. I smiled, realizing that now I had a new chance for a happier life with Rachel. Rachel? Rachel code, I said out lot. Dear God, I've got to get back to her. I grabbed my car keys, ran outside, and jumped into my 10-year-old dark green Hyundai hatchback. Luckily, it fired up right away, and I tore off, heading for the corner bar. I burned rubber the entire way, except while passing the block where a police officer was putting the now handcuffed pickpocket into his patrol car's back seat. There was a single parking space available on the street, two doors down from the bar. I jammed the Hyundai into the tight spot, shoved a quarter into the parking meter, ran into the bar. Rachel was nowhere to be seen. The older couple was still seated at the table near the door and a male bartender was filling a large glass with a blue moon, but there was no Rachel. Maybe none of what I thought I experienced had really happened. Maybe I was just nuts. I glanced at the broken Duquesne brewing wall clock. It was still halted at 422, one hand covering the other. Both stopped at the same point in time. I heard a female voice behind me say, that clock hasn't worked for ages, Danny. I spun around and saw her standing there with my glass of Bushmills in her hand. She smiled that winsome smile of hers handed me the glass and said, you've got a couple of friends here who want to say hello. She guided me over to a corner booth occupied by Orson Welles and Stephen King. Well done, Mr. Dunmire, Welles and King said in unison as we sat down opposite them. It felt weird sitting in a booth for four and only two of us had our images reflected in the mirrored surfaces on the adjoining wall. Wells spoke first. We didn't want to leave without finding out what you finally chose to write, Mr. Dunmire. I handed the paper to him. He laughed heartily and gave it to King. King read it out loud. A blank slate. Well, I'll be a son of a, he started laughing too. So, you want to write the story of your life on a blank slate all by yourself, and you chose Serling's words almost verbatim. Way to go, Mr. Dunmire, way to go. Wells leaned toward Rachel. And you, my dear. What were the three words you mentioned having chosen?" Rachel grinned and said, it was almost the same as Danny's. A blank page. Excellent choice of words, my dear, he said as he kissed her hand. Unfortunately, Stephen and I must take our leave now. Wells and King rose from their seats and headed toward the door, arms draped over each other's shoulders. While fading from view as ghosts and almost ghosts are wont to do, I heard Wells paraphrase Humphrey Bogart's Rick character at the end of Casablanca. Stephen, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship.
0: To the Ninth Story Podcast, a hicks and fabulous production.
1: I broke it. Ran outside and jumped into my 10 year old dark green Hyundai Hunchback. <laughs> hunchback. <laughs>